Welcome to the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast, the podcast where we discuss specific tactics and strategies to grow your nonprofit. I'm your host, Trevor Bragdon. This is the first episode of a new series where we'll be periodically featuring the stories of nonprofit founders and diving into what they learned taking their organizations from just an idea into reality. Our first guest is Dr. Sarika Kulkarni, who founded the Raw Foundation in 2011 with a small group of like-minded people who wanted to use their entrepreneurial skills and education to create sustainable income solutions for women and youth in the tribal villages of Maharashtra, India. Prior to founding the Raw Foundation, Sarika was a professor, an author, and an entrepreneur before she decided to spend the rest of her life in the development sector. She is an alumni of the Social Impact Strategy Program at the University of Pennsylvania, and today Sarika serves as the managing trustee of the Raw Foundation, overseeing stakeholder engagement, fundraising, and capacity building for the staff. The Raw Foundation has won numerous awards across India and has even been featured in a Harvard Business School case study. Welcome to the show, Sarika. Thank you so much, Trevor. And what a way to start 2021. I have always been a big fan of your podcasts and to be on it myself is like a big high for me and honestly can't uh, expect a better beginning to a new year. Oh, good. Well, it was fun getting to know you. You'd reached out through our website and it's always cool to uh, meet listeners around the world. You know, when we started this a year and a half ago, I didn't really expect to have listeners beyond America, but we have people in India, we have Cambodia, we have a bunch in Kenya. Uh, so it's been fun to see that kind of international growth. Well, I was excited to have you on the show. And after we first talked a few weeks ago, you had told me about how you'd started this nonprofit in India. So can you tell us about the Ra Foundation and what you do? Yeah, sure. So Ra is a Hindi word for path. We are on a mission to create a carve a path to create a better life for the underprivileged, specifically for the tribal indigenous communities living in uh, the western part of India, which is Maharashtra. We work about uh, three hours driving distance from Mumbai. So, you know, we are in a way connected, but in a way completely disconnected. These tribals are completely disconnected from development. We take a, we all know that uh, social problems are all intertwined and multi-layered. And hence, we take a holistic and integrated approach to tribal development, which involves work on water, agriculture, women empowerment and gender equality, tribal art revival, environment and health. Over the last six years, we have built about 45 uh, dams, 125 different types of wells, and made 45 tribal villages water secure. By this, I mean that uh, in earlier, women used to spend about five to six hours every single day fetching water. Now the water is available throughout the year in their own villages and they can finish this task in just 15 minutes, leaving them enough time for uh, pursuing other income generation activities and improving their health big time. Water availability has also created opportunities in farming and more than 1,200 farmers now take uh, year-round crops and have stopped migration and are leading a life of dignity in their own villages, earning income through farming. About 300 women have started micro-enterprises from the comfort of their home and are confidently changing the course of their life. We have 25 tribal artisans who are working with us, who are earning an income through by pursuing their traditional tribal art. 
there's much more greenery in the area than than what it was when we started i think so we are on the right path to create that change in the life of tribal communities that's great well and one of the things that was really fascinating about what you're working on with the raw foundation is how you're approaching it by going to the local communities and working with what they have there and helping them so that they can live and stay in the area that they were born and grew up in and don't have to migrate to mumbai or these other more business hubs to earn a living. So I want to dig into that. But so as part of this founders series, I'm really interested in finding out what made you start the Roth Foundation, but also what's your background, Sarika? Was this something where you always wanted to run a nonprofit all along or was this something that you had this moment where you realized this is something I need to do? So this is my third career Trevor I was uh, never you know when I started my uh, professional life I never thought that I will actually be part of a development sector uh, I know I did a PhD in management and I was uh, teaching very happily in a leading business school in Mumbai uh, in 2001 what happened was that I was on my maternity leave and I got a chance to start a ITES uh, business uh, as an IT enabled services business and there was a boom in India in those days and lots of people were quit- quitting their jobs and actually getting into that sector i was very scared to quit my job because you know i was very comfortable in a cushioned world of uh, a job seeker kind of a role you know where i was working and i was getting my salary every month but i was on my maternity leave and i thought there's nothing to lose let me try this so i started this business in 2001 and soon actually i got the hang of the business i quit my job and became a full time entrepreneur business grew very fast we were kind of doubling ourselves every year and there were lots of opportunities which were coming our way we soon realized that uh, we need good people to scale up our business and good as in uh, not uh, we you know we had a fabulous training program so we knew we would we could train anybody so we wanted people who were passionate who needed work and who could be uh, uh, who could this is gap arrangement and stay for a longer duration of time we thought why not experiment with school dropout kids because they were needy they needed work and that's how we took a batch of first batch of 10 people and experimented with them uh, expanded our 3 months training program to 6 months because they didn't know anything about uh, this sector or they we had to start really with the basics of communication skills and stuff like that but the experiment proved to be super successful and we soon had another batch of 30 and then another batch of 30 by 2010 we had about 400 people working for our organization out of which 150 were these school dropout kids wow this not only changed their life for good because they were like literally aimlessly directionlessly roaming around in their villages trying to figure out what to do in life and here they had a fabulous job they became bankable they could get loans they had good salaries every month this changed their confidence they bought they took loans repaired their houses they encouraged they became role models for other youths in their own villages and lot of things changed for them but lot of things also changed for us it had a enormously humbling effect on all of us all the founders that we were and uh, you know when i would see a young boy or a girl who was not even confident to look into my eyes on the first day and within a year would bring a box of sweets and uh, telling me that i just bought a bike and that kind of actually made me cry every time this happened and i realized the enormous potential that i have being privileged 
to uh, make that difference to somebody's life who are less fortunate and probably that was a moment when i thought that i want to spend the rest of my life in the development sector we were soon bought out by a very large american uh, company in the same space we were always inclined to make contribute to society in our own small small ways but uh, this experiment of changing lives of so many youths reaffirmed our beliefs and we decided to take that leap of faith and ra foundation was born in 2011 that's the story <laughs> yeah and what a story it's really interesting how you went from university professor you know teaching people kind of business theory concepts running your own business but then looking and seeing this need with school dropouts and being willing to kind of bet on them and your ability to train and help bring them up to speed so you could really change the trajectory of their life that's really amazing and i'm sure those people you know are forever grateful that you kind of took that leap with your business to bring in those people yeah well tell me so you started the foundation in 2011 and you'd had this background you knew you had some things that worked with training people to get better at their jobs you could take individuals who had a, a rougher start but talk to us about what you wanted to do out of the gate with the raw foundation what was your plans when you initially started and then talk to us about how they evolved over time yeah so as i you know mentioned that the whole thought was that uh, we have a very strong management background we have a very strong business background and we have already created a successful model of recruiting uh, dropout kids training them and pro- providing them with good jo- job opportunities so our focus was that livelihood creation we were very determined to work on livelihood creation that you know train people get them jobs and stuff like that but couple of things happened when you, when we actually started working especially in the tribal areas we realized that there were too many other impediments to livelihoods for example uh, water was a huge impediment uh, water was only available for about 3 to 4 months after the uh, last rains which is up to december maximum january after that water started receding and um, lots of areas became uh, water scarce women would spend almost the entire day fetching water clearly leaving no time for them to pursue any income generation activity or economic activity men were forced to migrate despite having small land holdings because there was no water to take any second crop or third crop and so clearly we had to go back to the drawing board and start working on water because it was very very essential water was underpinning all other social problems so unless you crack that uh, water code nothing else was possible and that's how our uh, water program evolved and once water became uh, available year round water became available farmers started approaching us and these tribal communities they are not traditional farmers they are po- traditionally they are for the forest gatherers and they would uh, typically only take the first crop which is the monsoon crop of uh, millets and rice and then they would migrate so they never knew how to grow vegetables they didn't know how to grow fruits they grow flowers they started approaching us that please tell us please teach us how do we take the second crop how do we take the third crop what are the nuances associated with that what entails etc etc and that's how our agriculture program also evolved women entrepreneurship and women empowerment program you know once women stopped spending entire day on water they had all the time in the world and uh, we realized that we have to provide that uh, opportunity to women also because again agriculture mostly it was male dominated kind of a opportunity 
our women entrepreneurship program evolved because we wanted to do something for women and we have over 300 women and many of them are completely illiterate and teaching them entrepreneurship skills was another big challenge and we kind of did lots of experiments that how do we teach them to maintain records of sales when they cannot even read and write write their own names how do we do that so lots of experiments have actually gone into creating a robust model of women entrepreneurship program and making the whole thing sustainable Uh, similarly when we started working there we realized the pathetic condition of tribal artisans because um, hands that are supposed to uh, paint a traditional tribal art form actually had to migrate and work on construction sites because they couldn't commercialize the art form we then started working with the tribal artisans and uh, teaching them more commercially relevant skills we then Uh, that was the time we also started a affiliate social business called ra creative design which then uh, which now provides uh, market linkages to because bridge gap to the market was so uh, essential clearly i mean we started with something but today we have a very very different model than what anticipated we would do so clearly the evolution and i would say this was a very robust evolution because we changed based on the feedback we got from the field based on the feedback we got from the beneficiaries themselves so it became a very bottom up kind of a model which hence has is extremely sustainable it is replicable it is scalable and that's where we are today that's great well it is really interesting how you know once you address that core problem you looked at it you saw these tribal areas you said you know why are these people migrating to mumbai and these other areas for opportunity well water is this big issue once you solve that you have all of these other opportunities to help them so it was you know it wasn't this one and done situation where you help fix water then you move on to another community and you stuck with that community and said how do we help them i think that's just a fascinating approach and this bottom up approach that you guys exemplify and the whole look at experimenting trying things new and then seeing what works and doing more of that and the stuff that doesn't work stopping that. So, can you take me back just a little bit to when those early days when you're still kind of figuring out the business model, what did you think it was going to be like running the nonprofit and then what or the foundation rather? And then what was it actually like and what were your biggest fears in those early days? Yeah, sure. So, all of us have very glorious ideas of changing the world and i also had awesome ideas about you know this is how i will change the world and so on and so forth but when you actually start uh, getting down to doing it uh, we rea- you know the reality really sinks in because there are compliance issues there's a challenge of getting good people to work for you getting donors fundraising getting communities to trust you getting the local governments to give you approvals uh, uh, which are necessary especially for building dams etc you need approvals from the local government like so many issues and honestly all these can really overwhelm any founder but i think once we got our rhythm right there was no looking back the challenges actually converted got converted into opportunities and we found our way and we found our raw as we like to call you know because as i said raw is path the biggest fear i would say is again um, uh, trust building trust building across different stakeholders i was always uh, scared when i started raw foundation that will i be able to convince people about my integrity about my passion about my genuineness will communities trust me will people trust me with their hard earned money 
will donors give me donations will can i do fundraising so all this trust building across stakeholders was the initial big fear that we had but these fears i would say soon obliterated once we uh, got the first donor on board then that gave us confidence that yes you know we have now have a model which we can take to other donors as well once uh, we saw changes in the communities uh, where we were working once we got out of this fear uh, the, i would say the scaling up uh, really started happening so can you take me back to that first donation you know that's always a big moment for any nonprofit founder you get that first check or that first gift what was that like and how did that happen yeah absolutely so you know we were uh, uh, very convinced that we would uh, not experiment with other people's money we would uh, spend our own money and create that model which and once we were confident we will then showcase it to people and showcase it to uh, friends and other people uh, outside our own uh, community and comfort zone and then raise funds that so that has always been our thinking and thought process uh, so when we started the foundation 2011 uh, the first uh, fundraising we actually did only after four years because then we also had the confidence to talk to people about our work so you didn't fundraise for four years it was all funded by your own money yes it was all funded by our own money and we were also very lean so honestly the costs were also not that much We were a very lean organization. So primarily, the costs were on uh, projects, very mm-hmm. little on people. And once that model was there, uh, then we started showcasing it to people. And uh, honestly, the biggest, I would say, the hurray moment happened when um, one of the largest philanthropic organizations in India, uh, started by Mr. Azim Premji, who is one of the wealthiest uh, individuals in India, human beings in India, and I would say also in top hundred in the world. Uh, his uh, philanthropic foundation is known for very strict due diligence you know their due diligence is very tough it goes on for months they themselves approached us because they found about they learned about our work they heard about our work and they thought um, it resonated with their mission and vision we passed through their due diligence successfully and today they are one of the largest uh, donors we have i think that was a moment when we thought that yes doing the right things we are absolutely on the right path right that's great and as it's grown have these donors that you had in those early days besides yourself obviously and your family's donations but has those early donors continued to stay with you these last 5 or 6 years as you as you've continued to expand absolutely even the first donor who came to us another corporate actually they continue to fund us uh, despite working with us for 5 6 years they absolutely continue to have that faith and not only do they continue but they have also increased the quantum of their donations every single year so i think that also is uh, enormously uh, confidence boosting for all of us even uh, so we also have a lots of retail donors small donors who give uh, uh, say monthly bi monthly or six monthly annually they also every single person continues you know i mean i would say uh, probably we would have lost less than 5% of the original list of donors <laughs> wow that's incredible and like in the us donor retention is one of these challenges almost all nonprofits face but it's just incredible that you can have that success year over year with donors renewing and i think it speaks a lot to the just great work you're doing and the outcomes and impact you're having so Do you want to just tell me about 5 years ago you made a pivot with the organization where you decided to exclusively focus on the tribal areas you've been trying to do some work in Mumbai in the city 
And then you'd also been doing this work in the more rural regions. And just for context for American listeners, this area, the state that you guys operate in, it's about 100 million people. It's about the size of New Mexico. So it's like pretty large area, but also has about a third of the population of the U.S. So it's a big area with lots of communities. But tell me about that decision, you know, where you decided to focus exclusively on the tribal areas and shut down some of the operations you were doing in the city. At least that's how I understand it. Yeah, absolutely. So I had actually gone on a trekking trip to the tribal areas and uh, what I saw moved me completely. The entire road from the highway to the trekking point was dotted with women and girls of all ages walking with pots on their heads, you know, searching water or carrying water. I was so moved by the scene. I was constantly thinking that who's heavier? Is that water heavier or is the woman heavier? You know, they had, they had multiple pots, you know, two, three pots. And these thoughts kept, kept on nagging me. And I realized that the only way to get out of these thoughts was actually to go there and start working with these women. So then we started a small project in the tribal areas, uh, as I mentioned, primarily on livelihoods. And then we realized that water was an impediment. That was a pivot. And then we soon realized that why don't we just close all other operations or I won't say close all operations. We exited from from the operations as in we from Mumbai operations. Also, we kind of exited because we then got another organization to take over from us and continue the work because we didn't want to stop anything. And I think that's a good point. You didn't like shut it down. You just handed it off to another group, which sometimes we forget is an option when we're looking and trying to change our strategies. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, because that also made us feel good, you know. Even today, when I go and visit these Mumbai areas, I realize that the good work continues, and that gives me an f- enormous sense of satisfaction. Because then we we realize that you know all of us have limited bandwidth, all of us have limited funds. There was no point in doing something here and something there. We thought let's do everything in one area. And create that model, which is, as I mentioned, scalable, replicable, and sustainable, and showcase that model. And there's so much to do there. I mean, there was absolutely no point in doing here and there. You know, the entire area is bereft of water. There's so many opportunities that you need to create there. And I think this approach or this uh, strategy or that decision we took then is uh, looking back uh, uh, is helping us enormously because we are known as a tribal organization. So we are definitely getting that respect from the government. We are getting that respect from a lot of large donors who want to support indigenous communities, who want to support uh, tribal communities, uh, tribal development. Uh, so I, I think that was a great decision looking back. The moment of indecision in between, we thought, why, why exit Mumbai, why exit Mumbai? But that tough decision we took, looking back, it's wonderful. You know, it's a great decision. Yeah. And at the time when you were making it, like, did you have to get your team on board? Or what was that like internally? Because that's a big switch where you're going to kind of go all in on one area. What was it like communicating that with your team? And how did that work? So luckily, as I mentioned, you know, in the initial period, we were not uh, fully staffed. We were very, very lean. So it was primarily me who was doing everything. I mean, I was the one who was uh, going to Mumbai slums, doing the programs there, trying to understand. Because as I mentioned, I'm not from this sector. So I wanted to spend as much time as I could with the beneficiaries to actually, you know, because my learning happened there. And I, I was actually happy looking back, Trevor, that I was raw. Because then I was open to learning. I was open to listening to anybody who was willing to talk. I think that's where my development, actually, my development also happened. My self-growth happened because of that. 
so it was very lean staff so when we decided to move there were very little people it was only the board of trustees that we had to convince that we want to do this and clearly the problems in tribal areas were so enormous that convincing you know the board just said that go to the worst area and work on the worst problems create that change that we will be proud of and that gave us uh, you know confidence and green signal to actually start doing this the big challenge however was what is how do we start working in the tribal areas you know i mean we have i am not a tribal right i just went there on a trekking expedition i don't know anybody there nobody knows me there so what should be the starting point but uh, by continuously visiting i would typically go once in 10 days once in 15 days go and spend my entire day just talk to people meet people understand the problems uh, listen to the problems talk to old people who were in the villages and that's how i met some of the tribal youths who were wanting to work closely with me and um, there was a shared vision there was a shared passion and i realized that, uh, that this will be my starting point because they are all tribal youths who come from the community building that trust won't be difficult and i'm so proud uh, today that we have a team of 15 field staff everybody is a indig- comes from the indigenous community every single person is a tribal and that is how actually we started working that's i think getting that local community to work for you is very very important there's no point in parachuting somebody from mumbai to these tribal areas then the efforts will be much more uh, than you know what we took otherwise right when there's such a strong impact of having somebody who's like you similar backgrounds understands all the dynamics you know can just connect in such a different way than like you said if someone came in from mumbai and talking to them on how these tribal people on how they should change or how they should do this do that versus working with someone you know or someone who's very similar to you i just think it's great how you just went to the area and started talking to people like you didn't go in and say you know i think what you guys need is a well or i think what you need is dams first you'd come in talk to people understand the community hear their problems from their perspective and then then go back and try to look for solutions It's really like we've talked about this already quite a bit but on that bottom up approach seems much more effective in coming up with a solution that works for their specific area. Absolutely. So talk to me, you know, you mentioned earlier in our interview how you started this foundation, you started with building dams and then once the women no longer had to spend all this time going and trekking water back and forth, they had opportunity to start businesses. Talk to me about that process from finding markets for goods and how you started training these women on what people wanted to buy and then helping them with skills on launching businesses. I'm particularly interested in learning more on how you worked and helped these people who couldn't read both learn accounting, which is a complicated thing in a, in and of itself, but then also how to run their own business. so what we did was we did a market scan i think coming from a business background really helped us a lot because uh, we have that we build that habit of looking at it from a roi perspective so here of course our uh, it was sroi social return on investment so what we did was we did a market scan and we realized that there were two types of businesses which were possible one is where uh, rural women could cater to the urban market needs and two is where rural women could cater to the rural market needs mm-hmm. uh, let me talk about the rural to rural uh, supply chain uh, so we saw multiple ham- uh, villages where there was not a single say for example a grocery shop 
and the entire tribal community from that village had to walk a couple of uh, maybe an hour maybe more to the next village to buy uh, sugar tea powder you know because nothing was available in their village so we realized that this was a need you know there was a gap so if we can train a rural local woman from the village to actually start this business uh, in that village she will have every entire everybody from that village will become her customer and that can be a fabulous business opportunity for the woman so we started we have started grocery shops we have started uh, fish selling businesses dry fish selling businesses some women have started a flour mill because rice and uh, millets so uh, we make uh, bread rice and uh, millet bread and we all cook at home so uh, so this uh, rice uh, rice and millets have to be converted into a flour so flour mills uh, some women started some women started some other businesses so we would do a market scan and understand what is not there in this village the second uh, thing was to actually choose a woman so here of course uh, important criteria is to choose the most vulnerable woman as in a widow a woman who has handicapped children a woman whose uh, husband is probably handicapped or uh, a widow you know uh, things like that a single woman that was the first criteria the second most important criteria is that she should be willing to use this opportunity her desire and her willingness was very very important and we also believe in change without charity that we don't give anything for free i think that is a very very important aspect of our foundation mm-hmm. nothing comes free to them when we build dam we expect tribal communities to contribute in labor when we actually work with farmers we expect what we do is that uh, suppose we need um, 100 dollars for uh, to help a farmer take multiple year round crops we divide this 100 dollars into 30 30 and 40 uh, so 30% will come from the farmer himself he has to contribute to uh, creating that change in his life 30% goes as a loan from the foundation which the farmer has to pay over a two year period interest free loan and the 40% goes as a grant from the foundation so then what happens is that there is a enormous ownership in the farmer to make that project successful similarly when we work with this women entrepreneurs locally what we tell them is that uh, for vending you need a shop right and that shop is nothing but a hole in the wall of our hut so what we tell women is that you create that hole in the wall in your hut you spend money on creating that shop infrastructure we will give you two months of supply if you are starting a grocery shop and we will also give you intensive training on how to run that business and that's how it works and because she herself has spent her own money in creating that hole in the wall her stakes are there and she has enormous ownership for the whole program and everything becomes much more successful we have our success rate is extremely high because there is skin in the game mm-hmm. of the tribals themselves so this was one type of business that we started the second type as i mentioned is that rural women catering to urban needs so here uh, uh, what we did was we actually did a swot analysis with the women and understood what were their strengths and what were their weaknesses lot of uh, women actually knew tailoring stitching embroidery skills like traditional tribal uh, embroidery skills all we need to do was hone these skills and help them make those products which would be probably uh, sold uh, in the urban market we already had this affiliate social business ra creative design where we had designers who would then go and train these women teach them marketable skill teach them the perception of quality that the market has that was important because their perception of quality and our perception was so different so again uh, bring them to that level teach them new designs teach them different ways of making a product so all this was done and today we have about 300 women who have started uh, 
rural to rural uh, model of uh, entrepreneurship and we have an, another 100 odd women who actually cater to the urban customers by making this interesting products in patchwork so they make patchwork quilts they make patchwork bags they do painting they do embroidery cushion covers and stuff like that which uh, the market needs in mumbai that's great is it a for profit company the raw creative design or is it just a business side of the raw foundation that actually sells a product yeah it's a completely different uh, company it's a for profit social business mm-hmm. so because it is for profit it is sustainable and uh, because it is social business uh, there there are no dividends profit is not taken out of the company it is plowed back into uh, training more people bringing more people into the business fold and stuff like that so right but it is run by a completely different team of people so there are you know because the skill sets are very different mm-hmm. so we have a creative head we have a marketing person there we have person who can train community in uh, uh, creating those beautiful products we have a person who looks after uh, who does exhibitions so very very different skill set and very very different team and foundation has a very different team so they are like a hybrid model i would call mhm Well, it's really interesting for listeners who have been on your website. It's this really unique style of art that you have a whole line of products that you guys sell. But it's also like what it's interesting about that hybrid model is you can help these people who are in these tribal regions sell in a very big market in Mumbai. You know, millions of people. but also they're giving communication back like this is what's selling these are the designs that are working this is the quality level that you know the consumers demand here they would have to travel all the way to mumbai to find that out and it's really probably wouldn't have that information except with this partnership so i think it's this really interesting way you guys have approached that problem of you have a really unique product here but no one knows about it how do you get it over here but also there's unique demands in that area as well absolutely you also wanted to know about how do we teach uh, entrepreneurship skills to completely illiterate women so this was a big challenge you know this is a huge challenge because in the initial days women would kind of try to remember what they sold and when they in the evening their children came back from school they would tell the children they would always be confused whether it was two packets of chips sold or three packets sold whether it was half a kg of sugar sold or whether it was 1 kg of sugar sold so then what do we do so we have actually created uh, we have used lot of pictures here and we have actually created a pictorial sales book and uh, where the sales book actually has picture of every single product they stock and what they just need to do is put tally marks marks in front of the picture so once they sell the product say one unit or whatever half a kg she just puts one tally mark if she's selling 2 kg she puts two tally marks so that's what we have taught them what we do is that once a week our staff member visits all these women so we handhold them for about a year and in this period we also teach them some basic numbers to write mm-hmm. those numbers mathematics but until then once a week our field staff visits these women and converts these tally marks into actual numbers and <laughs> so we have also kind of taught them that how you have to keep your home money and business money separate because otherwise what we saw was that you know the children would come and women would tell tell the child you know just give money from her uh, business money that mm-hmm. you buy something for the home and stuff like that so we had to create that uh, give them that sense of difference that you know this is your business money 
then we also taught them how every month they can keep a very small amount separate for scaling up mm-hmm. so all these so they're like we have actually designed the training program into four different levels level 1 level 2 level 3 and level 4 and what we also do is that after about 6 months we grade these women into category a category b and category c category a is where uh, uh, their women have mastered the whole art of business and they can really scale up the business big time and then we closely work with her on scaling up uh, the business category b where she needs a little more help and category c where the chances of dropout are very high because she is not able to manage and then we look at uh, plan b and then we have plan b and plan c and stuff like that so it's a big matrix that we are worked on <laughs> and all this is honestly evolved from the field through our experiments that's great well and it's i love how you like even as you help them launch you work with them for a year then you're still like making how you're working with them specific to their needs like if they're all about scaling now we're going to help them with scaling their business if they need more help with managing inventory or the accounting side or all of that you'll help them with that and then trying to keep the business from failing you know and dropping out which are all kind of different approaches i'm sure and need different help and interventions to make that happen absolutely what's been your biggest takeaway as this has grown particularly this entrepreneur space with the rural to rural and rural to urban model what's been your biggest takeaway that you think other nonprofit leaders should think about when they are creating programs to help individuals in their own area or their own groups of people that they serve so i think one of the biggest things that uh, we have been using and uh, i'm sure we'll work in uh, any uh, country or anywhere is using local wisdom so the solutions actually lie in the problems themselves that has been my biggest learning that when you look at the problems the solutions are hidden from somewhere there and there are like old people in the village there are old people who have they have actually seen the world changing they have actually seen the problems happening the solutions come out from the field itself solutions are not uh, cannot be curated uh, in a air conditioned office room it has to come from the field that it lies in the, on the field that has been my biggest takeaway do you have an example of that just to give you an example you know we recently got funded by virat kohli foundation virat kohli is the captain of indian cricket team and he wanted to do something for the nutrition of the children our area is very infamous for malnourishment and malnourishment deaths also so clearly it was this program was very critical and very close to our hearts because we wanted to give that food to the children and when we were sitting in our mumbai office and thinking about all that we can give and as against what we are doing now is completely different because we thought that maybe we can give them millet uh, protein balls we can give them peanut butter balls and things like that but when we actually went to the field and started talking to the mothers start, started talking to the community workers there we realized that children are not going to like all of this they don't like sweets you know the tribal children do not like sweets at all and everything that we were thinking of giving them were sweets oh funny so we had to come out with some savory snacks you know so <laughs> so everything was uh, so entire menu is very very different than what we had uh, originally conceptualized i was going to say you like you'd think kids love sweets you know my kids love sweets but like again if you don't have any access to them it probably tastes kind of gross you know if you didn't grow up on them or I'm sure they're not as uh, prevalent in those areas. So that's really fascinating savory snacks are Absolutely. Uh, resonate a lot more with people. <laughs> Absolutely. 
so i think and multiple times we have had this experience where the local wisdom has forced us to change everything that we had decided sitting in mumbai office <laughs> that's great well and it's one of these things i think it also speaks a lot to you and like how you just look at this how all is a experiment and an opportunity to learn whether it's going into the villages before you really even started anything and just talking to people you know it'd be really easy to come in and say we know the solutions here you know you're a business school professor you know you understand a lot about scaling and running uh, large organizations but just going and finding out what's there and like you said the solution lies in the problem i think that's you know advice i think everyone can take so was there a moment as this has all taken off you know you're working with foundations of famous entrepreneurs in India famous cricketers you know which is like the sports equivalent of like football in America was there a moment when you felt like this is going to be successful and this is going to be larger than you'd initially imagined yeah i think there was as i said getting that model right was tricky but once we got that right and once we knew that we were on the right path we started seeing the green shoots and which kind of gave us the confidence that probably this will be successful and i think uh, getting approval from uh, likes of appi azim premji philanthropic initiative and now virat kohli foundation we definitely are confident that we will be big so getting notice from people getting notice from government getting approvals from government has become very easy now because they all know about us we won several awards last year i got an award of women in water you know um, like every year few women from india who work on water uh, creating that water solution for communities get awarded i was chosen last year so i think we are getting notice now we are getting people are coming and talking to us people are asking us for ideas people want to learn our best practices i think now we have evolved and now we definitely think we can scale up big time and become much more successful than what we are today and honestly answering your question when we started we never had these ideas you know it was just that uh, one step we were taking at a time we were not even looking at what will happen after 5 years what will happen after 10 years and things like that but now we have started looking there because we have that confidence of doing that 5 year plan <laughs> right so what is the next 5 years for the raw foundation look like like what are you hoping to do i know when we talked initially you're looking to expand fundraising into the united states you've already started that what's in store like what are your big dreams for the next 5 years so again the uh, geography wise we definitely intend to continue working in the same geography we definitely don't want to move out of the tribal areas because i think we now have a understanding of the tribal problems of creating and curating those solutions for the tribal problems we have that trust so in terms of geography we definitely don't have any plans of moving out of those areas we currently are working in about uh, 10% of the villages if you look at the uh, total population of the all or the number of villages in the tribal areas we are there in 10% of the villages we clearly have a long path ahead we uh, want to double ourselves in uh, year on year which is definitely possible given the model that we have now and given the understanding we have now given the staff we have also spent a lot of money on capacity building of our staff 
for example, we work on water and we realize that understanding the hydrogeology of the area was extremely important. Identifying the aquifers was very, very critical to our work on water. So we actually took our uh, field staff and me myself also underwent an exhaustive training on um, hydrogeology how to understand hydrogeology, how to identify the aquifers, how to understand where water uh, will percolate, where water, which rocks are porous, which rocks are non-porous, etc., etc. It was extremely technical, but we kind of underwent that. So I think now we have that confidence of scaling up, at least becoming double every year, year on year. For that, uh, as far as fundraising goals is concerned, uh, we have a few donors in US and we uh, intend to intensify our uh, fundraising uh, efforts in US. India also, of course, we have a lot of donors. We are in the pipeline. We are talking to them. Clearly, the more number of people come on board to support our work, the more communities we can help prosper and the more people we can impact. It's direct correlation. Right. Well, and you guys have had such a great track record of growing and scaling and finding unique solutions. And I bet when you started out, you didn't expect to be going into sitting in a class on aquifers and hydrology and learning all that. Absolutely. But, but it's also like you have to learn what you need to to get your job, to get the job done. So Absolutely. it's great that you're open to learning that. As we're wrapping up, we'd like to make our podcast about fundraisers and nonprofit leaders taking action from what they've learned. So what's the one thing you challenge our listeners to do or remember from this interview? Spend time with the beneficiary communities. I spend almost 80% of my time in the villages, talking to people, listening to them, learning from them, and only 20% on fundraising. But this 20% is so effective because uh, I can talk so passionately about my work. I think that is uh, the key takeaway, I would say, and I would like to challenge all the listeners also that uh, spend as much time as you can I never have to tell my donor that I will come back to you on that because I have all the answers, because I have grip on the work that we are doing. And that's only because I spend so much time on the field, going through all the programs, spend time with the beneficiaries, listen to them. I'm open to ideas from the field. That has probably made me much more effective fundraiser than what I would have been otherwise. That's great. And I think that's all advice I'll take, which is just spending more time in the field and counterintuitively that it makes you much more effective as a fundraiser, which once you hear it, it makes a lot of sense, but it's probably, you know, counterintuitive advice for people to take. So where can our listeners find out more about you, Sarika, and the Ra Foundation? Absolutely. So you can go to our website, www.raahfoundation.org, rafoundation.org. Website has all the information about our work and about us. You can also uh, find me on LinkedIn. I'm extremely uh, active on LinkedIn. You can search uh, Sarika Kulkarni there. I kind of do at least one post uh, every two, three days about our work. I post pictures of me on the field. I post pictures of beneficiaries and stuff like that. So you can find me on LinkedIn. I would love to get feedback. I would love to hear from you. I would, If there are any best practices anybody would like to share with me, I would love to listen to them because we are constantly after all the best practices, constantly. You know, we don't want to reinvent the wheel. We want to listen to what people have done, been there, done that, and take them to our fields as well. So yes, please get in touch. That's great, Sarika. And we'll put all the links in the show notes so you can connect with Sarika and then be able to find out 
about that as well. Well, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking with you and finding out about the work of the Roth Foundation. It's just a unique approach. And I loved learning more about your story. And it was great to connect with a podcast listener and now be able to share your story with our listeners as well. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Trevor, for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you're interested in our upcoming workshop, visit our website at sevenfigurefundraising.com. We conduct these workshops twice a year in March and September, and we've broken these workshops up so you can take them live online with six two-hour courses spread over three weeks. We'll send you a workbook and other class materials to make it really easy for you to follow along. In fact, this is what one of our students, Austin, said about his experience in our workshop. Hi, my name is Austin Brooks. I'm an executive director of a nonprofit called Midland Institute for Entrepreneurship. I took seven figure fundraising 18 months ago. And since that course, um, two things I want to share. One is the results, two is what I didn't expect. And the results as a nonprofit, even though we reach into 10 states, even though we're working in 320 high schools, um, we've always had a pretty small donor base. And what's been so powerful in the results that we've seen since this course is I've successfully been able to recruit and add some new donors that had never previously been given to our organization. And then more importantly, there's this idea that's gonna be shared in this course called the dynamic dozen. You have to take the course to figure out what it's about. But within our dynamic dozen, we had five donors increase their giving in a big way. And between that and the new donors, this has been a game changer for our growing nonprofit. But the second thing that I really took away that really matters is just the mindset shift. What I I wasn't expecting was how much my mindset needed to shift, how much I had to shift my poverty thinking or my scarcity mindset to realizing that whether there's a recession, whether we lose a couple donors, if your organization is doing good work, more people need to know about it. And so the confidence that I gained in terms of talking to high level individuals who believe in our mission has just grown. And what's been more um, impressive than anything is the proof has been in the actual donors we've gained. So if I can do this, I believe you can. You can't miss this course. You got to take it. If you're interested in attending, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com. We hope to see you there. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, please take 60 seconds to leave a review. Thanks a lot and good luck with your fundraising.